Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Matt Dwyer. Later in the show, we will be joined by Southern Connecticut State University Professor Jonathan Morton to discuss a few of the high-profile local races in the state. Party committees finished endorsing candidates for mayor last night. But first, we speak with the pride and joy of Waterbury, Connecticut, White House Council on Environmental Quality Chair Brenda Mallory. She grew up in the Brass City. She went to Yale, and she has roots in the state. Welcome to the show, Brenda. How are you? Hi. Matt, I am well. Thank you. Thank you so much for that uh, for that introduction. I, I like thinking of myself as being the pride and joy of Waterbury. So I, <laughs> I appreciate that. So I guess to, to start, let's let's start at the beginning here. Tell tell me a little bit about your your childhood. Where where did you grow up in Waterbury? Um, I actually grew up in um, the north end of Waterbury, which is where um, I would say a, a large portion of the African American community uh, lives. Uh, it's a it's a neighborhood that actually transitioned several times in my lifetime, but now I would say is largely a uh, African American and Hispanic uh, community. Um, and I went to the public schools uh, in Waterbury. I went to Driggs Elementary School, which was walking distance from my house uh, for um, the first eight years. And then I went to a private boarding school in Middlebury. You mentioned that, that the, the North End around where you live changed a number of times. What, what was it like when, when you were young there? When I first, when we first moved in, my family first moved in, I think it was a sort of a mixed uh, race uh, community of uh, property owners, everyone who uh, lived uh, there. There was at least one person uh, who actually um, owned uh, the house that was part of the, um, that was part of the three family houses that, um, that lined the streets there. And that was true of my family as well. My grandmother um, owned uh, her house and then the house we lived in, my uncle owned. Um, so it was a very, I would say, stable kind of working class slash um, middle class community. And then uh, over time um, began to suffer more as uh, the community changed racially and then it changed um, uh, economically. And then there were many fewer people who actually owned their houses who were still there. Uh, and and mostly uh, residents who were who were rent, renting. When you you know sort of watched some of those changes in your community, I, I mean, did that sort of provide you with some lessons that that you sort of took to heart that maybe came back kind of later on in in your life? And I love the way you asked that question, Matt, because I think as I was living through it as a child, and then you know, looking back, you know, as a um, high school and college student. I'm not sure that the things that I saw were as meaningful to me as they were when I got to later points in my career and professionally was working in the environmental area and you know working on environmental justice issues. Um, so looking back, I think there's a more significance to what I saw growing up and what I saw happening to the, the community growing up than I think I appreciated while I was living through it. What, what were some of the, those things that, that you saw that, that stuck with you? 
Well, Waterbury, uh, at least the north end of Waterbury, is, is, you know, has a number of or had a number of uh, factories, a number of kind of industrial type facilities that were sort of scattered throughout the um, throughout the community. Um, I think, in, the, in fact, the first house that I lived in um, um, when I was very young was like right next to some factory of some sort. I think maybe it was a bread factory. I'm not even sure. Um, but that was not uncommon. Uh, and then as the neighborhood started to transition and the industry left, um, many of the, those uh, areas were just, you know, scars in the community were empty um, facilities, empty parking lots. Uh, and it brought with it some of the, um, I think, dysfunction that often comes with that sort of a transition. In terms of your your later work on environmental issues, I mean, did that sort of give you a ground level view of of what can happen when there is some sort of an, an old factory building there or some sort of an environmental problem in the neighborhood? Again, I do feel like I can appreciate what happens when communities go through a transition and what that does both to the physical appearance of the neighborhood, but also to the ability of people to get jobs, of some of the um, health issues that people experience, like you, all of those things, I, I, see the, I see what that looks like uh, on uh, individuals that you know, that you know and um, see how their lives have been changed by those sorts of experiences. Were there also some members of your family who were, were public servants as well? Yeah, I actually, as it, as it turns out, I would say many of the folks in my family um, served either uh, the federal or, you know, city uh, government or worked in kind of um, what I describe as public uh, serving jobs, like in hospitals, you know, working as uh, nurses and technicians. And, um, and so I think there's very much, you know, a sort of spirit of engaging as a public servant that has been part of my life and history. Uh, some of which I think is related to interests, but some of it is just, you know, uh, candidly related to the jobs that were available. Your father w- was was Reverend Thomas Mallory, and and he was was known in Waterbury as the, the chair of the Waterbury Human Rights Commission. And I understand he was also an investigator at the State Commission on, on Human Rights and Opportunities. Is that correct? Yes. Um, yeah, my father uh, definitely um, gave me a, a perspective on. Uh, policy and public policy engagement um, that I is, has, was very meaningful as I moved forward. He spent uh, at least 30 years as a um, as an employee at the State Connecticut uh, Commission on Human Rights before he then um, became a pastor and then served in the community in sort of pastoral roles and working with um, some of the city organizations that provided services to to the public. Was he part of the reason why you got into this environmental work and with CHRO, social justice sort of work? You know, honestly, I don't think so. I really feel like I started out not even necessarily planning that I would do environmental work um, or even even work uh, in the environmental justice arena. Um, and I, I feel like I stumbled into it. But once I was there, it was meaningful to me in ways that I um, 
I'm sure would not have been true, but for my previous experiences, right? So I'm, I'm not a person who can say that, yes, uh, working with my father drove me to go and do something. But I can definitely say that my experiences watching what was going on in my community and the kind of work that he did influences the way that I see the issues and the, um, and the challenges that are presented. And, and I understand also, I mean, you have some ties to other parts of the state of Connecticut as well, that you had went to the Westover School in, in Middlebury. Did that change the, the trajectory of your life, do you think? Oh, absolutely. There's no question about that. I think that what Westover did for me was it, um, it allowed me to think about possible opportunities that I might not have. I might not have thought about going to a school like Yale. Or, um, or the possibility of being an attorney or um, just different ways in which my, my life unfolded. I think Westover was kind of eye-opening in terms of the possibilities out there. How big a, of an adjustment was it for you going from the north end of Waterbury to Middlebury and, and to Yale? I think it was a very big adjustment. Um, in fact, I, I believe I even said in my, uh, my hearing statement that I was aware at every stage that the life that I was leaving was very different from the life that I was heading into, that there were people were struggling with issues in my hometown or struggling with livelihood in my hometown, which was not present uh, in places like Westover or uh, even among my my colleagues at, at Yale. It's just the, the pressures of just plain survival were just very different. Did the combination of those two different experiences maybe also give you sort of a, a different view of the different sides of some environmental issues and how they play out in terms of people for different classes or, or people with different incomes? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that I have always approached environmental uh, issues from the perspective of um, what's the impact going to be on the, you know, the community, on the people? I'm very aware of um, the fact that there, you know, that there are real life consequences to some of the choices that we're making. And I've tried to take that practical perspective into the, into the work that I do. How, how tightly intertwined do you think environmentalism and, and social justice are? Well, very intertwined. Um, and I think in particular, the in some ways, the sort of last few years has really shown uh, the ways in which those, um, those two issues are connected. When you think about climate change and we think about the ways in which um, we are anticipating and already seeing effects on uh, communities from flooding, from sea level rise, um, you know, different things that are affecting communities, they are often affecting poorer communities. The, the flooding is often occurring in areas where there are poorer communities and who, who are suffering from those uh, impacts, um, you know, repeatedly. And so as we think about how we're going to address climate change, I think we inevitably have to be thinking about how we're going to impact the people who are uh, on the, in some ways, on the front lines of facing those issues in order to, you know, in order to help not only them, but to help everyone else. Back in, in 2019, you had signed on to an opinion article from a number of, of former Obama administration officials 
who were, were responding to, to chants of, of send her back at, at some Donald Trump rallies that were aimed at Representative Ilhan Omar and some other women of, of color serving in Congress. And you'd also written a post for the, the American College of Environmental Lawyers describing some, some similar things that had been said to you in the past because you're black. And I, I mean, a couple of years on now, a lot has happened in the last couple of years. Do you, do you think that, that things have changed or, or improved in terms well, of that situation? No, I mean, I, I think what we ha- what we see now, and I think I was I said this in the article at the time, is the issue we have to deal with is much bigger than I think I had previously appreciated before we arrived at the 2019 uh, moment. Uh, and and I think that the George Floyd murder in 2020 did a lot to really draw attention to some historic issues and historic problems that, you know, that many people have been facing. And but what happened after that was that there were more people who were not people of color who were standing up and saying, this is not right. This is a problem. We need to address that. So I think there's been a growth in the the community of people who appreciate some of the racial and social issues that that I that are present. But there has also been somewhat of a growth in the in the backlash. And so I I think we're kind of far from being in a place of um, of of you know shared a shared understanding across the board. But it is very important that um, we have. Um, people of all races and all colors who are standing up for for justice in a broader way. When you consider the, the outcome of the, the last presidential election, do you, do you maybe consider that a, a sign that some people have have learned something since since 2019? Well, again, I think that was a lot of people worked hard and organized hard to get the outcome in, in that election. But you know, even even now, you can see how much effort is going on all across the country to try to change the voting rules so that the, so that the vote wouldn't turn out the way uh, it did in, in 2020. Um, so, you know, it is not a time to, to think that we have reached a point where anyone can sort of sit back and take that for granted. I just think that people have to be very focused and work together to try to work towards, you know, work towards real justice. We'll have more with White House Council on Environmental Quality Chair Brenda Mallory coming up from Connecticut Public Radio. This is Where We Live. I'm Matt Dwyer. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Matt Dwyer. Our guest in this segment, White House Council on Environmental Quality Chair Brenda Mallory. She's from Waterbury. So the Council on Environmental Quality is reviewing some, some Trump administration environmental changes that could have weakened the National Environmental Policy Act. And those Trump administration changes never fully went into effect. So I guess, how would the Trump administration changes have altered environmental reviews by federal agencies? And, and why is that important? Yeah, well, first, just one clarification. I don't think it's fair to say they never fully went into effect. I mean, they are effective. Um, the The issue is that they didn't have time for agencies to really um, kind of do many um, of their environmental reviews based on uh, those uh, those regulations. But but they're there, and I think what we're trying to focus on as we review those regulations is what are the things that were changed that we are concerned will impact the quality of the environmental analysis? Um, a, a very uh, clear goal of the regulations was to narrow the scope of the issue, the of the issues that would be addressed in an environmental review in order to expedite the processing. The priority was on expediting the processing. Uh, we believe uh, at the expense of ensuring that you the decision was based on an uh, in, in environmental analysis that would allow you to make a sound decision. So uh, our focus right now is making sure that there is an adequate review of the issues, that you allow for adequate public participation, um, and that you do those things in a way that can ensure that you have timely decisions. That's Those three things are important in order to meet President Biden's agenda um, uh, going forward. But essentially, would, would the changes under the, the Trump administration, would those have essentially not allowed enough time to, to do a, a thorough and complete environmental analysis? Is that kind of the, the, the issue or part of the issue? I think that's part of the issue was not allowing enough time for the review, but also trying to change the rules so that the review would have not looked at all of the issues. To, to, if, you, if you take a very narrow view on what you have to review in order to reach a, a decision, it's, it's much easier to leave out important issues. So for example, one of the big concerns when you're um, talking about either climate change or environmental justice issues is not just focusing on the activity that is, you know, directly within the boundaries of, um, of, of you know, the federal uh, footprint, but to look at what consequences are going to flow from that outside of that permit decision. So if you're, uh, and for an environmental justice community, you know, if, if all you're looking at is how you're adding a new uh, activity uh, without considering what impacts are already being borne by the community, that's not going to be a complete analysis. And so we want to just make sure that the decisions that are made are smart and that they reflect the best uh, a best analysis of what the uh, impacts will really be. How harmful do you think that the, those Trump administration changes would have been or were to the environment? And, and do you think that they would have hurt certain groups of people particularly? I think we were the concern, at least again, and I should just emphasize, like we are in a process right now in which we're actually examining the reviews. 
But the worry that we have as we look at um, the, the regulations and think about the kinds of decisions that the federal government makes is that it would have narrowed the environmental analysis in a way that just would have uh, undermined a solid decision. And that, um, again, for, for this, the kinds of decisions that are affecting our lower, um, com uh, lower income communities and communities of color, uh, major transportation decisions as an example, you, are, you end up with a result that has people who are suffering from your activity as opposed to being benefited by it. And I understand that these reviews are done on, on projects that, that include like pipelines and highways and, and sometimes drilling on, on public lands. What, what sort of protection do these reviews actually provide for people? They require that the agency, before issuing whatever the permit or decision is, fully consider who is going to be impacted by it and how you can actually make changes to the way the project is set up to minimize those, those impacts. Uh, if you eliminate that review or if you conduct that review in too narrow a way, then you don't avoid the harms that you could have um, that you could have avoided. How do you kind of respond to the argument that the the reviews before the Trump administration changes that they, they took too long and that sometimes they took more than, than four years to complete? Yeah, I, I know that there's, again, a, a real focus on the timeliness uh, issues as opposed to the quality of the impacts. And I guess what I would say is, you know, what a response to the timeliness issues would be more investment in the uh, ability to do more timely reviews, like instead of cutting the pay, you know, the payroll of the agencies who are responsible for um, undertaking these reviews or, you know, not allowing for the level of expertise on the staff because you don't, um, you know, you don't have uh, sufficient resources in place. Instead of those types of actions, investing in making sure you have adequate uh, staff, making sure that they're well-trained, making sure that they are structured in a way in conducting their um, projects that will lead to a timely result is a better answer and a more long-term um, uh, you know, uh, answer because you don't end up having to redo things that were done or suffer harms that flow from uh, inadequate reviews. So, so would it be correct to say that basically that you sort of see speeding up those reviews as, as more of a, an effort to sort of have a good process rather than an opportunity to kind of limit the scope of the reviews? I, I think that there is a way to do um, reviews that give you both a good review and uh, a, a good process. I think that's what we're aiming for. Okay. Are, are there any other areas where you're, you're kind of uh, taking a second look at, at any changes that were made during the Trump administration? I mean, I think right now the, you know, the direction that we received um, from President Biden in the executive order was really to look, you know, holistically at the rule. And so that sort of comprehensive review is, is going on now. And what we're trying to focus on um, at this point is identifying the changes that are causing confusion or disruption in the in the processing um, in, you know, right now and addressing those first um, in a kind of a phase one approach 
and then stepping back and looking more broadly at um, the, the rule and other impacts that it, it has, as well as ways that we might improve um, the National Environmental Policy Act regulations, considering where we are in 2021. Last week, uh, you and, and some other members of the Biden administration released a, a plan called Justice 40 that's intended to improve the environment in, in low-income communities and often people of color that have been disproportionately impacted by pollution. So I guess what, what does this, this plan, what, what does it actually do? Yeah, um, so thank you. So the Justice 40 is, um, was an, a basically an, a commitment that the president made really from the, you know, during the campaign, but also from the early uh, days of the administration, that in recognition that certain communities, low-income communities, communities of color, tribal communities have been disinvested in over the long term, that he would direct the federal agencies to invest 40% of the overall benefits from federal climate and clean energy uh, investments to these disadvantaged communities. And so the Justice 40 um, guidance that we issued is basically explaining to to the federal government how we want them to go about approaching meeting that commitment. Um, And basically it included three things that were uh, important. Number one is sort of established a framework, identifying specific um, types of programs that should be covered uh, and included uh, across the federal government. It created some pilot programs so that we would use the 21 pilot programs as a way to learn on how you can best integrate uh, justice, the Justice 40 commitment into the overall um, federal uh, programming. Um, and then uh, thirdly, it set up sort of accountability and um, uh, other mechanisms so that we can just track whether or not we're being successful in meeting the goals that are laid out in the program. So it's a, a very important uh, step in ensuring that we meet the, the president's commitment, but it definitely is a beginning step, one in which we will continue to be um, in touch with the communities, uh, in touch with the public about how to make sure we can move forward in a way that makes sense for the agencies, but also makes sense for uh, the communities. Do you see this at least partially as sort of a a racial justice issue as well? Well, I mean, I think um, the whole focus on the, the Justice 40 initiative is really on disadvantaged communities, communities who um, over the years have lived with legacy pollution problems, who lived with uh, transportation problems, uh, transportation projects that have actually done more harm to the community than uh, than help the community. So, uh, yes, it's an it's an approach to trying to address some of these issues as well as help move these communities in a positive way when it comes to thinking about clean energy and uh, improved transportation efforts. I understand that the the plan essentially takes the form of of like guidance for federal agencies. Do do you actually sort of have the the authority to kind of require those agencies to to change how they do business? Or or is it simply that, you know, you're, that this plan is coming from the White House, so those agencies will, will carry it out anyway? I mean, I think, you know, basically the way most statutes are uh, are set up, the you know, the president has 
um, broad authority in running the executive branch, in managing the ex executive branch in a way that, of course, is consistent with their statutory framework. So I would say we absolutely have the authority to identify approaches that federal agencies should take as they're trying to meet this goal that the president has directed, and he's directed that it occur consistent with their statutory structure. So there's no, you know, we're not overlooking the fact that there are statutes that guide these programs. We're basically saying under those statutes, how do you meet this goal, which we think is an important policy goal for the administration? This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. We're speaking with White House Council on Environmental Quality Chair Brenda Mallory. Let's talk about the weather for a couple minutes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when, yes. <laughs> when, when you look at, at the, the recent floods in Europe and, and the unusually hot weather in, in parts of the U.S. this summer, do, do you see those as, as signs of climate change? Well, I, I think it's the, the predictions from our scientists have told us for a while that extreme weather events is part of what we will see as the effects of climate change increase. And so I think that the, there, is, uh, there is agreement in the scientific world that there, that there is a relationship. I, I hate to use causal terms because I know there's such sensitivity about that uh, by scientists, but we believe there's a relationship to what we are seeing and to the need to address climate change, which is why there is you know, such focus by this administration in trying to um, reduce the amount of carbon in the environment. And the, the Council on Environmental Quality uh, recently issued a report suggesting the development of, of carbon capture or carbon sequestration. So I guess to start off, what, what, what is carbon <laughs> capture or carbon sequestration? Sure. And it, the, the report, carbon capture, sequestration, carbon capture, utilization and sequestration is kind of the, a term um, that is used to refer to a set of technologies that remove carbon dioxide um, from, from, the, from the atmosphere so that you're not just relying on um, trying to have people not allow emission, em emission to occur but you're saying, well, in some cases it's occurring and we have to address it. Um, and this was a, a report that we issued under the direction of, of Congress uh, at, in December of last year that they wanted um, CEQ to um, identify and explain the, you know, the permitting processes that are necessary for uh, the carbon capture uh, and sequestration um, per, you know, approvals. Um, and so that's what the report was. The idea of carbon capture or carbon sequestration has been around for at least a couple of decades as a, a possible solution to the buildup of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Do you think that it is ready to go and ready to actually be used now? Yeah, I mean, I think what we, what we said in the report um, is that there is a need, there continues to be a need for more research and investigation on what works, what makes sense, what kinds of um, carbon capture uh, uh, technologies can be deployed with, um, with you know, what, what types of facilities. Like, so for example, you know, we, we see a lot of potential in, um, in being able to kind of use the carbon capture 
on kind of manufacturing type facilities, given the nature of the emissions that uh, result from uh, from manufacture. But we need more investigation and more research to figure out what what's going to be most successful. So I, I, I think that we know that there are CCUS, some CCUS facilities that are operating uh, in, in certain places. And so the idea here was to try to position this um, industry in a way um, that, that we can grow it because we need it, but also grow it in a way that has a positive, um, that can have a positive impact uh, on communities, or at least done in a way that has a less harmful impact on communities than it might. Some environmentalists kind of object to efforts to try to, to capture carbon from fossil fuel plants, and they, they make the argument that the, the research uh, money or efforts or time should be spent trying to reduce the amount of fossil fuels that are burned to begin with. How do you respond to that argument? Yeah, I think the president has been pretty clear that he believes that as part of um, the agenda that we need to be looking at all available tools that might be useful. And so I think we are moving forward um, in, you know, in recognition of, of, of that um, perspective. And, and I think the way that we are sort of trying to, to look at it is how do you use it so that it is um, not a harmful, you know, long-term continuation of uh, of some facilities that actually we, that we're positioned to do something else with that we're positioned to kind of uh, eliminate from the from the portfolio and so you know there's a balancing that has to happen for sure. I know you're going to have to leave in a couple of minutes. So I just want to try and get in one last question here. The, the nations in the European Union recently proposed a, a plan to try to move away from fossil fuels over the, the next nine years. I believe the sale of new gasoline-powered cars would be banned in Europe in 14 years. Extra tariffs would be charged on goods imported from countries that, that don't have significant limits on greenhouse gas emissions. Is there anything that you see in that European plan that you think might be something that would, would work here in the U.S.? Or is there anything there that kind of gives you ideas for, for something to try here in the U.S.? Well, I guess one thing that I think we know um, just from the efforts that have gone on in trying to tackle climate change for, you know, for, you know, more than a decade now, um, several decades now, is we need to have approaches and um and tools that are, you know, geared towards the, you know, the way that the United States and the United States industry works. And so I think that in the president's agenda, I think we've like tried very hard to identify um, the things that we believe are going to have, um, you know, resonance within this country and be, you know, doable uh, within this uh, this country, which you know puts a lot of emphasis on, you know, transitioning to uh, electric vehicles, you know, reduction in the, um, the, the you know, green, uh, having more green kind of uh, energy that we use, uh, focus on our buildings, you know, focus on the industrial sector. I mean, the, the pillars that have been laid out that are part of our um, plans for um, moving forward, I think, are, are, you know, designed to work with our economy and our um, businesses and what we think are, are, you know, will work here. Some of that has overlap, um, I'm sure, uh, with um, what, what the Europeans are thinking, but I think our, our focus has to stay on, you know, what we're able to do do best and then partner. Like the, one, of the, um, one of the initiatives that CEQ is involved in uh, with respect to our, uh, you know, own 
greening the government is, is, is working with our European uh, and uh, Canadian partners to see how we can, you know, can, can work together on some of the approaches that we're taking and learn from each other. So there's you know, much opportunity for that. And I think that, you know, that is a better approach for, for us. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to say? I'd just like to thank you for the opportunity to, to chat. There's a, a lot of great work uh, going on in the administration right now, and CEQ is um, fortunate to be uh, assisting on many of the efforts. And so I um, just appreciate the time and sharing our work. We've been speaking with White House Counsel on Environmental Quality Chair Brenda Mallory. Thank you for joining us. Coming up, We'll take a look at the party endorsements in some of the top mayor's races in Connecticut with Jonathan Morton, Associate Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is Where We Live. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Matt Dwyer, filling in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up on tomorrow's show, the future of low-wage work after the pandemic. Our guests in this segment, Associate Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs and Grad School Associate Dean at Southern Connecticut State University, Jonathan Morton, and New Haven Mayor Justin Elliker. So, Mr. Elliker, there was big news in the New Haven mayor's race. Last night, challenger Karen DuBois-Walton dropped out of the race at the New Haven Democratic Town Committee meeting. Congratulations on winning the Democratic Party endorsement for re-election. Thanks so much. Do you think that, that your work in office during COVID-19 was a factor in, in your clinching the endorsement last night? Uh, I think it was a, a significant component. You know, our, our team has been working very hard since February of 2020 uh, when we started to realize that COVID was going to be a real challenge for the community until now to keep folks safe. And um, through many, many conversations across the city, uh, residents, uh, feedback that we got was that we were largely successful in doing that, bringing people together, making sure that we supported everyone, but in particular communities that have historically not had uh, the resources, whether it's health or economic, uh, to get through a crisis like this. So was Karen Bois Walton's decision to drop out of the race and, and to sort of clear a, a large obstacle in, in your path toward towards re-election I, was that a surprise for you or were you kind of expecting or did you get a heads up? Uh, you know, it's nothing is a surprise in New Haven politics. Uh, I think New Haven has a history of quite lively dialogue and um, unexpected uh, turns in events politically. Um, we, we had heard some uh, conversations that that might happen, but, uh, uh, you know, in the end, until uh, someone says that they're not running, it's you, you never quite know. What was it like for you just kind of in the moment at the meeting last night? You know, it was really exciting. I, I, it was actually, frankly, more emotional than I thought. And I think, you know, the fact that um, the Democratic Town Committee unanimously uh, endorsed our, our candidacy and that while we do have, um, you know, I do have a Republican challenger uh, for the general election, uh, this was just a very, very strong uh, endorsement of the work that our team and I've been doing for the last 19 months. Uh, I think people recognize that we're, we're really getting things done and whether that's confronting COVID or whether that's working with our state delegation to dramatically increase the funding that we're receiving from the state to help uh, confront our financial problems in the city, uh, whether that's pushing another, uh, a number of other initiatives to make sure that 
people like um, uh, individuals coming out of prison have more resources and confronting the increase in violence in the city. I think that people feel like our team is working very, very hard and getting things done and delivering results. And last night's results uh, were an affirmation of, uh, of, of that. There, there were some uh, verbal punches uh, thrown during the campaign and some back and forth. Uh, is there a need for you to, to try to reach out to supporters of Karen Du Bois Walton now? I think that's always important to to do after an election. You, you know, one of the things that I said last night in my remarks was that while New Haven always has lively dialogue and um, sometimes that can become quite passionate, but in the end, when you step back from uh, some of the political commentary, everyone by and large cares about uh, the direction of our city and care and agrees on the way that we approach it. You know, the, the vast majority of issues aren't even Democratic or Republican. Everyone wants a financially solvent city that's able to keep taxes in line and provide the services for our residents. Everyone wants uh, to be in safe neighborhoods. Everyone wants to make sure that they have opportunities. And when we step back from the politics, we all can agree on that. And so that's, I think, for any candidate that's involved in office, once the dust settles and um, the election is over or you know candidates drop out of the race, it, it's something that at least I have made an effort to do in the past is reach out to the supporters of the other candidates to make sure that um, I underscore that I'm excited to work together and let's put politics aside and continue to work on improving the city. And Ms. Du Bois Walton told the New Haven Independent that she may go back to her job running the New Haven Housing Authority, where she's been on leave while she was, was running her campaign. Do you think that that's an appropriate move for her? I think, you know, ultimately that's a decision for her, but she has clearly shown over her many years at the Housing Authority what she can accomplish there. And you drive around the city and see the um, uh, her impact with your own eyes, with many um the New Haven Housing Authority developments that have dramatically improved what used to be. Uh, so uh, Dr. Boyce Walden has had a significant impact on the city. And if she chooses to continue uh, in that role, I think that that is a, a, a really positive thing for our city. It strikes me that, that your your last race was maybe longer than was expected at one point when you had defeated the previous mayor, Tony Harp, in a primary, but then she later decided to run again in the general election. But this time, it, it seems your, your main opponent has dropped out short of a primary. It, is, is it a bit of a relief? Does it feel different this time? Well, of course, it's a re- relief when um, uh, the path to winning is more certain. Um, I think the flip side of that is, uh, you know, frankly, it was a little bit of a surprise that after uh, just a year and a half in office, we had a very hotly contested race. And people have been talking about Dr. Du Bois Walton for for many years as someone that uh, might run for mayor. Um, for that to happen uh, during this time and after a very short time in office was a bit of a surprise. Um, but nevertheless, I think you know she threw her heart into the, her campaign like she throws her heart into uh, everything she does. And in the end, you know, from my perspective and my family's perspective, it's certainly nice not to have a as much of a highly contested race. And it's an opportunity for us to come together again as a city and um, for those folks that were supportive of uh, Dr. Boyce Walton to, um, to you know, for us all to work together. Uh, we certainly have a lot of challenges as a city, and us being able to collaborate to confront those is really important.
And Jonathan Wharton from Southern Connecticut State University is also here. Uh, Jonathan, do you have a, a question for the mayor? I do. Uh, good morning, Mr. Mayor. Um, well, you certainly mentioned with the general election coming up, John Carlson's going to be running there from the Republican ticket. But beyond that, just internally within the Democratic Party, do you see some of these divisions or at least factions that do exist specifically among the black and Latino communities? Because that's part of the reason why, uh, you know, Dr. Boyce Wal Walton uh, ran, but also we can't forget Macy Torres as well. Uh, because she's planning to continue on in the primary. So I wonder, uh, beyond you know, Du Bois Walton, you still have uh, Macy Torres. So I wonder if you're concerned about some of these divisions within the party. I, I don't see a lot of divisions from the party. And I think there's been a narrative about residents um, that certain people uh, vote a certain way based on how they look. Uh, that has... I think quite clearly proven wrong in this election and the mayoral election where uh, Mayor Harp and I ran against each other in 2019, where you know my campaign got uh, vast support across the city. And similarly in this election, you know, with the ward committee votes across the city as a, as a kind of a bellwether of how people feel and how things are going. Um, uh, the ward committees overwhelmingly voted uh, in our direction in Latino neighborhoods and predominantly black neighborhoods and predominantly white neighborhoods. We also did polling uh, to get a sense of how people felt about the direction of the city. And um, my, uh, my favorability rates were strong among all populations in the city. Um, I think specifically to your question around the remaining you know, candidates in the race, uh, Macy Torres, uh, you know, has been um, at a lot of the ward committee meetings. Right now, there's an opportunity for her to get her name on the ballot by collecting thousands of signatures. That is a pretty significant hurdle uh, to overcome. So we will see if she's um, she's able to do so. And uh, and of course, you mentioned um, the uh, the Republican candidate as well. And I think that uh, in 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 many ways, it's good to have uh, contested elections because it allows us to have a lot of interesting conversations. I think when you step back from things, most municipal issues have nothing to do with party. You know, people want safe neighborhoods. People want a city that is uh, that where their tax dollars are spent effectively and efficiently. People want their uh, streets paved and their sidewalks fixed and their trees trimmed and their schools to um, be run well. And those things really aren't Republican or Democrat. There's not a lot of differences there. And I think it's been quite clear uh, from our team and my commitment to those issues that we're getting things done and doing a, doing a really good job there. Great. New Haven Mayor Justin Elliker, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Jonathan, in, in a lot of towns, winning a party endorsement is just kind of one step along the way toward the election. But in this case, does Karen Bois Walton's decision to, to halt her campaign, does it almost decide the mayor's race in New Haven? It largely does, because that endorsement is key. And in the primary specifically, they'll be coming up uh, if, if, you know, as the mayor mentions, which could be a good possibility that Macy Torres is not able to at least petition to get on the ballot, then um, right, that that is going to be the key factor. There's going to be no uh, competition then if that is the case, which which is really critical for the primary. And in terms of Macy Torres, we should note as well, she drew no support at all at last night's convention in terms of votes. It was was unanimous uh, in favor of Justin Ellicker once Karen Du Bois Walton dropped out. Um, so 
up until last night, it had been looking like a showdown between Justin Ellicker and, and Karen Dubois Walton. Why do you think she dropped out? You know, I, I'd like to know that um, because, you know, I, I know that there's some segments of, of New Haven who wanted to see her run even before, uh, you know, this, this upcoming election. So, you know, I, I, I wonder if she's just trying to, you know, begin a pathway for two years from now where you could see ultimately uh, some significant competition because you know, generally speaking, it's, it's been uh, a trend for decades, really generations that uh, after one term of an incumbent uh, in office, they, they win um, into the second term. So I wonder for two years from now, if she was just putting this out there for competition's sake to get her name out there for two years from now. Why do you think that's the case? I mean, what, are there certain structural things going on in New Haven that make it more likely there that that an incumbent is going mayor is going to win re-election, or is this just something that you see statewide? Yeah, you know, New Haven is 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 unusual because, uh, like other cities, like New Britain and uh, a couple of others, they they get uh, you know two year terms. Uh, other places, you know, especially in the suburbs, tend to have four year terms. So it's kind of a given that for a uh, a mayor to really find some, you know, make some substantive reforms or changes, it's best that they at least have uh, four years or two terms. And Karen Dubois Walton also had to return more than $70,000 of campaign money she had raised earlier because she essentially had been acting as a candidate before formally setting up a formal candidate committee. She only had an exploratory committee. She was doing well in fundraising, but do, do you think that that maybe hurt her campaign? No, I think that that was a strategy on her part. So that, you know, she could get some public support and recognize that, you know, she's trying to find something on equal footing, financially and politically speaking. I will say from her side of things, it was kind of interesting, the support that she gathered uh, were, were mostly from, you know, a real estate uh, industry related, uh, you know, firms and, and developers and that kind of thing, which, which is kind of intriguing for the future. And do you think that, that Justin Ellicker's performance uh, during the pandemic as mayor, that, that I don't know, people kind of will come together behind a leader during a crisis, do you think that, that his performance there helped him? You know, it certainly grabbed the headlines. Um, we certainly saw a, a lot of attention focused on the response. And certainly uh, his administration's uh, attempts of getting, you know, clinics out there, especially in some of the parks and even the downtown green. Others were saying that, you know, there should have been more of a presence and, and uh, you know, there should have been more uh, clinics. And, and so, you know, you're going to get the, the challenges anyway for any administration. Okay. Jonathan Wharton, Associate Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs and Grad School Associate Dean at Southern Connecticut State University. Thank you very much for being on the show. I'm Matt Dwyer, filling in for Lucy Nalbathanchel. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Today's show was produced with assistance from Katie Tularski.